Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. So I've got some exciting interviews lined up for the next few weeks. On the topic of effective altruism, I'll be speaking with Robert Wiblin, who is Director of Research at 80,000 Hours where they help as many people as possible lead high-impact careers by providing advice for talented young people who want to have a social impact. He also runs the 80,000 Hours podcast, which you should definitely check out. I'll also be talking with author and neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett about her book, How Emotions Are Made. This book makes it clear that emotions play a far more causal role in our rational decision-making processes than we previously thought. It's also a must-read for anyone who wants to improve their emotional intelligence, which is nearly a necessary component for success, however you wish to define it. Both topics are ones that could seriously change how you view and approach the world. They definitely did for me. Today's topic is on a similar vein. We are going to be talking about the psychedelics again, a topic that fascinates me to no end. The fact is, the nature of consciousness confounds us to this day. And there are these substances that we've called the psychedelics or entheogens that can modulate our conscious experience and quite reliably induce profound, transcendent, and at times life-altering experiences. These substances can imbue you with existential wonder, transporting you to domains of ecstasy and divine revelation, but also transfer you to unimaginable places of terror and despair. Putting the substances aside, the question that must be asked is why do we even have the capacity for such transcendent experiences? I'd just like to quote some of the research on the topic of the psychedelics to highlight why we should increase our inquisitive efforts and really reconsider our archaic drug laws. These substances have the potential to revolutionize psychiatry, and so they should be treated as such. All of the links to the research can be found in the show notes at talkoftoday.com. Here's some psychedelic science. A landmark study by Roland Griffiths, a psychopharmacologist at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, showed that participants who were administered doses of psilocybin, which is the active chemical in magic mushrooms, under the close supervision of therapists, reported having life-altering experiences. Two-thirds of the participants said the session was one of the most spiritually significant experiences of their lives, and these ratings only shifted slightly. 14 months later. Another trial at Johns Hopkins looking at the effects of psilocybin on a smoking cessation found that the abstinence rate for participants was 80% after six months. This is remarkable when compared to what is considered to be the most effective smoking cessation drug, varanicline, if that's even how you say it, which has just a 35% success rate after six months. These substances can alter your personality as well. Traditionally seen as somewhat fixed, studies over the decades have shown that a psychedelic experience can increase one of the big five personality traits, openness. Openness reflects how intellectually curious and creative someone is, and is associated with liberal political beliefs, as well as an increased appreciation for things like art and abstract ideas. Then there's the whole issue of existential dread. A small study found that terminally ill patients who were given a dose of LSD showed a reduction in end-of-life anxiety. These effects remained a year after the study was conducted. The fact that a single dose of the medication can lead to immediate reduction in the depression and anxiety caused by cancer, 
and that the effect can last for such a sustained period of time is unprecedented. Some of these facts will be brought up or alluded to in the main interview. But I just wanted to throw them in here to highlight not only the vast potential these substances have, but also to emphasize their ability to give greater meaning to an increasingly nihilistic world. Now on to the episode. My guest today is Chris Timmerman. Chris is a PhD student at Imperial College in London and is a part of the Psychedelic Research Group. They focus on two main research areas, the action of psychedelic drugs in the brain and their clinical utility as aids to psychotherapy, with a particular focus on depression. The group is led by Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris and is overseen by David Nutt, who was once the UK government's chief drug advisor until he claimed, true to the stats, that alcohol and tobacco were more harmful than many illegal drugs, including LSD, ecstasy and cannabis. It's a shame that in 2017, we don't only fail to make policy decisions in accordance with the facts, but we reprimand those who bring these shortcomings to light. Chris is a part of the team conducting the trials with the psychedelic substance DMT. I've covered DMT in depth in another episode with a man called Dr. Rick Strassman, who is widely regarded as having kicked off the psychedelic renaissance when he started research into the spirit molecule, as it is referred to as. It is the most intriguing psychedelic of them all, at least in my opinion. It's found in plants and animals around the world, even within the human body. It passes the blood-brain barrier, which means the body will expend energy trying to get it into the brain, so it may have some sort of use. The effects are bizarre as well, quite different to that of LSD or psilocybin. Users report of being transported to another realm that's more real than real and very familiar. A very common occurrence is interactions with entities or machine elves, as renowned psychonaut Terence McKenna described them. It's referred to as the spirit molecule, as a large proportion of users have intense mystical experiences. There's reason to believe that DMT could be released within the body during times of great stress, or during periods of meditation and yoga. So if any of this piques your interest, um, just check out my interview with Dr. Rick Strassman. Anyway, in my talk with Chris, we talk about the psychedelics in general, the neurobiology of ego disillusionment, the DMT research that is currently underway at Imperial College, and how do some of the psychedelics affect the brain? I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Timmerman. So my name is uh, Chris Timmerman. I'm a PhD uh, candidate in working in Imperial College London. Uh, I'm in a research team, psychedelic research group, where we study uh, the effects of psychedelics, and we try to use these substances to explore two areas. So one of them is how can we uh, use these tools um, within psychotherapy and to, you know, alleviate uh, depression, for example, is one of the mm-hmm. big works. But the other big area that we're using these substances is um, to understand the neurobiological underpinnings of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Or through um the big question through neuroscience yeah so basically as uh, using neuroimaging tools and aiding you know with the use of psychedelics we can better understand this relationship between the mind and the brain mm-hmm. so before we get into it can we just define what a psychedelic uh, substance is psychedelic drugs um 
They're usually, I mean, they're usually described as substances that have very strong and very kind of like um, potent effects on mood, cognition, um, attention, emotion, etc. Uh, so it has like very strong effects in consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, the working definition that we use psychedelics are a specific kind of psychedelic drugs. Um, which we call the ones that act on the serotonin system, serotonergic psychedelics. Um, And, you know, we define them as such because it has been shown that um, if you block um, the activity of a specific receptor, the serotonin 2A receptor, uh, with another drug before uh, administering a psychedelic drug, when you give the psychedelic drug, that uh, influence is nullified. And these drugs are LSD, um, psilocybin, which is uh, the active component of active uh, of magic mushrooms, uh, and DMT classically. There are many others, um, such as uh, mescaline, for example, as well. Uh, but this helps us differentiate the, uh, the, you know, the serotonin psychedelic drugs, serotonergic, and other sort of psychedelics which act a bit differently, like ketamine or like uh, salvinorin A or salvia. Um, so, yeah, so that's how we define them. So they act on the serotonin system and they have this massive effects on consciousness. Okay, so I guess that brings me to my next question, which is how are you guys defining consciousness? Because it's something that... You know, it's referred to as the hard problem and yeah. uh, we don't really have it. I I hear a lot of varying uh, stories as to, well, what do we actually understand with regards to consciousness? So uh, right. what are you guys yeah. using as a working definition for consciousness? I think the easiest one and the, and the one that is easier to, you know, to, to have some sort of like workable sort of thing where you test hypothesis is that <laughs> it's very non-specific, which is this idea that it's everything that doesn't go away um unless that doesn't go away everything that doesn't everything that goes away that so this is the definition <laughs> that which goes away in dreamless sleep and under general anesthesia okay so it's okay. a very broad definition uh-huh. uh, so that could be one right another one um is this idea that uh uh, the, the kind of like the metaphor of the stage of the actor. So uh, consciousness is all that is happening within this play theater of life, if you will. And the other main, like very, very intense component is the, the self. So the main actor in the play, which is me. This is kind of like something that's very dissociable or very intrinsic to the idea of consciousness. So is this definition more qualitative? Like it's more of a how it's how one of the, you know, the possible um, people participating in the experiments would report subjectively rather than some, you know, imaging of the brain or like, is, is there like, do you have a means of inferring consciousness from brain activity or anything like that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of like the endeavor in the field of, consciousness research within neuroscience is called kind of like trying to understand the neural um, correlates of consciousness. So from uh, different measures, so they can be subjective and you know what people say, but you can also kind of like try to understand when consciousness is gone in a person, it's, it's quite obvious, you know, like coma, for example, 
or yeah, you can look at you know like EEG activity when people are sleeping, and you can somehow infer if they're in a REM, which is more of a dream-inducing kind of like stage. So you can have some sort of markers for consciousness behaviorally. You can also kind of like try to understand if a person is in coma or if it's not in coma, and, and you have like you know usual medical tests for this. So you have this as, an, as a validity, if you will, of the conscious state, and then you can do neuroimaging on these different conditions. And by contrasting uh, these different conditions, you know, scientists are kind of like trying to understand now, um, yeah, what are the actual neurocorrelates? So what does it mean in terms of brain activity? What's the, you know, um, what are the necessary conditions in terms of brain activity for consciousness to emerge or conscious experience to arise? And could we unpack that now, or is it a bit, uh, a bit complex, and it would take a while to to go into? Yeah. So you have many kind of like um, I don't know some markers of conscious experience or conscious states. So, so for example, some theories propose that uh, you need some sort of like top-down activity, so uh, kind of like activity from frontal areas of the brain that you know relate to higher cognition or the ability kind of like to reflect on our own experience. And you need that frontal to posterior communication in the brain to, to have some sort of like conscious experience. So they've done some experience, some experience for, for example, with uh, people in the coma and the vegetative state and conscious state. And they quantify how much these feedback connection, the frontal to posterior connection is uh, kind of like um, disrupted as the conscious level goes down, right? So that's one. Another one is they're trying to quantify now um, uh, with a certain degree of success of uh, trying to understand how brain activity um, is integrated. Uh, so it's called integrated information, yeah. So uh, yeah, how, how much uh, brain activity is integrated and how much it's segregated in the brain. And depending on that, you get a measure of conscious state. Mm -hmm. Also in this idea of a continuum between wakefulness and coma. Mm -hmm. Now what's interesting about psychedelic drugs is that they don't, uh, you know, they don't influence in this continuum. They influence on another one, it seems. And we're trying to figure out what it is. Mm, okay. Because you, there's no loss of consciousness, and some would ex some would say that it's like amplified in a way, or it's it changes. It's uh, there may be like a. Uh, I think I read um, while doing research for this that psychedelics could be a means of obtaining. I think it was um, you know Carhart Harris's work, the higher levels of consciousness. That's what it was referred to as. But um, whether yeah. or not that it, does that sound about right? Or and how do you quantify that? How does that work within this in this model? So. Yeah, so that was kind of like the analysis of, so uh, collaborators from um, the University of, of Sussex, they, they took a lot of data of altered states of consciousness induced by different drugs, among them serotonergic psychedelics and ketamine as well, so LSD, psilocybin, and ketamine. And they quantified um, um, the diversity, the spontaneous neural diversity. Uh, which is kind of related to this idea of integrated information, right? 
And the, the basic idea is that you can somehow using um, magnetic activity in the brain or electric activity in the brain, you look at the signal and you can quantify how diverse that signal is, how rich it is. So you can think of it as some sort of dictionary. Uh, and if this dictionary is uh, large enough, if the dictionary is rich enough, um, you can say, you can some, somehow quantify the level of consciousness because it has been shown that this dictionary is kind of like reduced on states of coma, for example. There's been some experiments on this. So this is the first evidence that with an intervention, like such as giving a psychedelic drug, you have an enhanced uh, spontaneous neural diversity. Mm -hmm. So that those are the, kind of like uh, the conclusions of that study. Um, and it's, you know, and we did a similar thing, but now with the DMT and we're seeing the same thing. In some of the, uh, articles that I've read, uh, I guess the translation would be, we kind of get the brain of a child and that everything becomes novel and we see things from it, you know, with a fresh perspective. Is, is this what you, you're kind of referring to? It could be related to that. We don't have any direct kind of like confirmation of, of that specific experience or that specific quality of experience with brain data. Uh, but it definitely could be related to that uh, or the fact that, you know, connections between brain areas that wasn't there before are now starting to happen or that, yeah, the brain is basically exploring new states that wasn't exploring before. And that's this idea of novelty, of enhanced novelty, enhanced meaning, experiences can be a consequence of that. So I know there's been work on psilocybin and LSD, and now you are beginning to explore DMT. Uh, yeah. What is the experiment going to look like? What, uh, what, what, what are you guys going to be doing and what are you looking for? What's, what's the plan? Yeah, so... Um, we're trying to understand, well, we have many kind of like uh, ambitions behind the project. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is trying to understand, okay, well, we've done this with LSD and psilocybin, or the team has done this with LSD and psilocybin. Um, and we now want to understand, well, what happens with DMT? Is it something similar, say, to psilocybin? Um, is it different? In what way is it different? So, uh, as you were saying before, the mechanism of action is the same. Or do, do we know the mechanism? The mechanism of action for DMT uh, to the same degree as the others? Broadly, it's similar to psilocybin, but there are many differences. Of, there appear to be some difference, at least in terms of the pharmacology. And experientially, like the um, the experience that one has under the influence of these things, at least in my mind. There may be like LSD and psilocybin mushrooms might be over here, but DMT might be a whole other kind of experience yeah. uh, in, in of itself. So I, I've read that, um, and I, you know, I interviewed Rick Strassman and uh, read his book and a lot of, so a lot of people report of interacting with beings and machine elves or aliens or whatever you'd like to call them. And it's quite yeah. um, a yeah. common occurrence. So I understand that you might be trying to look into whether or not the, um, that's supported by the brain regions that fire when you recognize someone or something along those lines. Is that correct? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So we're trying to also understand. Yeah. So 
you know, it has many features, the DMT experience. Among them is this encounter with, uh, you know, entities. We use, we like using the term sense presence. It's a bit more... Sorry, what, what was that? Kind of like sense presence. Sense presence. Like the sense presence phenomena. Okay. You, you, you're sensing a presence, not necessarily mm-hmm. seeing an entity, like mm-hmm. some sort of visual aspect. Yeah, of it might it. not be visual. Okay. But you, but you, you know, some people report this experience of, of really... Um, um, something other being there uh, mm-hmm. in the experience that wasn't there before. Uh, and we're trying to get the neural signatures that relate to how we sense a presence in real life, for example, off the drug. And then we try to understand what's happening on the drug. Okay. But I, had, I was thinking about whether or not, let's say I was to see your face and mm-hmm. imagine your face. Is there a difference in what goes on in my brain between the two? Do we do we know that? I, yeah, I think in terms of the strength of it, I'm not sure. Okay. I have to I have to look at this specific thing, but uh, I, I I think my my guess mm-hmm. uh, would be that always in terms of perceiving something, the brain activity is stronger than imagining it. Okay. I I, I think you have similar sort of like activity. But it's just not as strong. Okay, and is this or related to directionality between various changes of the, the connectivity between imagining and perceiving something? And is this related to? I mean, because we are just referring to the visual or interpreting, you know, visual stimuli. Um, mm. Is that related to this work with DMT? Because you said that it may not be a visual interpretation of the world; it may be something else. So I, I'm just slightly confused there. Well, yeah, so the visual is the most notorious one, and it does happen fairly regularly that there is a sense presence experience um, when, you know, there's an actual face there. So a way for us to probe this is trying to understand how these subjects, you know, specifically each of these, what happens in the brain where, where, where they perceive faces normally, for example. Uh-huh. And then we take this neural signature and we try to see during the DMT experience where it pops up. Yeah, I mean, it would be quite. Imagine if it was just as if they were seeing someone, you know, in real life or something similar to that. It'd be quite bizarre. Um, and what are you going to be? So, what what else are you going to be um, looking for? So, there's like doing the brain imaging of them under the influence. Yeah. Is there going to be qualitative data? Um, yeah, yeah. So. Um, we're employing like um, a combination of, uh, you know, quantitative methods, which is brain imaging, but also we're kind of like incorporating advanced uh, interview techniques in which we get people to tell us, um, you know, the experience minute by minute as it, as it is unfolding. Uh-huh. And we have ways of tapping into that, you know, and having people you know, report a specific aspects uh, on specific moments. Okay. And there are ways that you can go about that. So this is a, an opportunity also for us to also tap into, you know, specific chunks of brain activity. Uh, so if they reach X amount of brain activity, intervene, ask a question, determine what their experience is like, something along those lines or? Kind, kind of. It's more retrospective. Retrospective. So okay. people have, have their full experience. And then we do this interview technique right after. Mm-hmm. 
and we try to recreate in time how the experience unfolded. And try and associate right. what they experienced with and, brain activity yeah. or I, I try and get the, yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. Okay. So that's, that's another kind of like idea that we have in mind. We've done a pilot phase. We, we've given DMT now to 12 participants. And we've done this interview team and it works quite mm -hmm. nice. And yeah. any uh, insights as of yet? Um, I know you haven't done the full study, but has anything popped up mm. that uh, you'd like to comment on? Yeah, sure. Um, so in terms of experience, it seems to be fairly reliable what happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and what, um, so what amounts are you working with? And are you doing, are you administering it intravenously? Intravenously is the same as Rick Strassman did in his study. So if you read, uh, if you read Rick Strassman's book, um, you find that he gave four different doses mm -hmm. to people. It's like five maybe. So yeah, one is the, one is the very low, the other was the low, the medium, the high and the very high, something yeah. like that. We're I think, work, and it was determined based upon uh, I think it was millimeters per kilo or something. And I think there was like 0.4. Like, I think one of the quotes was, um, you can be an atheist until 0.4. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway. So we're, 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 we, we gave a low dose, which is seven milligrams, which would be 0.1. And this is per kilogram of body weight. Per fix, we, we gave a fixed dose. Okay. So I'm just giving you, yeah, uh, multiplying by 70 kilos, mm -hmm. and you get like your standard, yeah. you know, weight of a person, um, your average weight. Uh, so we gave a seven milligram, which is a 0.1. We then gave a 14 milligram to different participants, which is a 0.2. And we ended up with 20 milligrams, um, which is very close to what, uh, Rick Strassman found was the optimal dose to give to his participants, which is the right balance between inducing very strong and interesting experiences, but that don't generate massive anxiety, potentially massive anxiety, or potentially, you know, strong uh, fear reactions or anxiety in some cases. So it's, it, it's, a, it's a nice compromise between safety and definitely getting the, the effects that we were, we were after. Mm -hmm. yeah. So they were experiencing yeah. interacting with, uh, what would you say it was a sense experience? Uh, well, oh, sense presence, yeah, sense presence. sense presence phenomena, yeah, sensing a presence basically, yeah. yeah. So we saw that popping up. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what? Uh, I guess I, I always do this when I when I chat to people. I I kind of just get in with what I want to find out straight away and forget to kind of ask the contextual questions. So like, what are the um potentially, you know, benefits of, or what are the effects of, uh, psychedelic drugs perhaps in the long run? Cause I know that you mentioned that there might be some work with, uh, some effects on depression. Um, I yep. know that, uh, can affect addiction, uh, and mm. there's a whole range of things. Would you like to could you just comment on that? Sure. So the main, uh, the main applications that are being tested right now uh, for, for psychedelics are um, their potential to treat uh, addictions. Um, it has been shown, like, yeah, there have been some studies, pilot studies done on, on tobacco addiction and alcohol addiction. And the other one, the other big one that's, you know, being used right now is depression. Mm -hmm. um, used to treat depression and um, 
there might be some potential as well for obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. And in terms of addiction potential and you know toxicity, uh, what do we know where these things are concerned? Um, they're not addictive. Uh, these substances, the profile of addiction, it has been shown in, in human and non-human studies that they don't induce compulsive mm-hmm. you know, consumption behavior or, you know, of any kind or any addictive behavior. And in terms of damage, it's the same. So the main, they're very safe for the body in the, you know, in the, in the doses which are usually used. Um, they're actually very, very safe drugs physiologically. Mm-hmm. Um, the main risk is, is you know, everybody can induce anxiety and fear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On the, but that's, that's very much modulated by the set context setting. in which people are in. Yeah, set and setting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's very important to also, you know, have the right participants in the studies and, and you know, this kind of like trail. Mm. So, in my mind, if you're going to uh, do some research, you know, clinical research on with a certain um, drug, it throws in, you, you start to think of, uh, you know, white lab coats and, uh, you know, quite sterile environment. So how are you ensuring a, a good set and setting for these individuals? Or are you just, uh, are your, um, the people who are undergoing the experiments, are they just seasoned uh, psychonauts for lack of a better term? Well, not, not everybody's a seasoned psychonaut, um, but everybody has to have had an experience, at least for the DMT study. Uh, have had at least one experience with a psychedelic drug, but we take care a lot in in this, you know, the mediation by these, you know, contextual factors. So uh, it's happening in a hospital room, but we put drapes all over the medical equipment. We have mood lights on. We have pleasant, relaxing music. We have, yeah, just drapes with, you know, soothing colors. Uh, yeah, we have nice lights, so we make the and, and we, you know, we treat them nicely and we try to make them feel comfortable. And uh, we spend like a lot of time with them before the actual. Mm-hmm. Do so you actually get to know them as a person rather than saying, "Oh, welcome. What's your name?" Oh, yeah, sit down, please, and we'll, we'll administer this. You actually know them on a somewhat of a personal level to a reasonable degree. I mean, you get to know them a bit as the day unfolds. It, it just happens, but yeah. it is very informal in the relationship that you that we establish with them. I mean, informal, not in any way that jeopardizes any sort of like scientific, you know, stuff. But but we we keep it loose so mm-hmm. that people can you know feel comfortable. After all, you know, they are they are going to have a, a potentially intense experience. Mm-hmm. You know. So when uh, will the uh, the experiments wrap up. When do you expect to have uh, some results? To uh, um, yeah, well, so we finish collecting data hopefully by December, by okay. Christmas. This is what I'm like trying to aim for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be nice, but I don't know if that's going to, you know, mm-hmm. that's, what, that's what's going to happen. Um, so hopefully done by Christmas. Uh, but results probably around summer next year. Okay. We'll have some. Okay. And what are you most excited for uh, 
I guess I could answer the question in that you just anything pertaining to understanding mm-hmm. consciousness in more detail is something that you're excited about. Uh, but <laughs> is there anything that, uh, in particular that you'd, that you'd be interested to learn? Uh, well, I'm, 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 I'm very interested in, in, in trying to see, you know, many of these experiences are what they say ineffable. You know, there are just moments where, where certain phenomena emerges. It seems very overwhelming, seems very special, you know, it's embedded with meaning. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm interested in, in trying to find out how this experience unfolds and how can we look at brain activity in mm-hmm. that. It's all about building bridges between specific experiences and specific, you know, brain activity that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And I feel that these drugs are, you know, special, you know, because you can induce extraordinary experience you know, well life altering for some people some people report like yeah, their exactly. lives change forever i mean exactly and if you're i mean getting rid of an addiction is one thing i mean if you can kick a, a lifelong habit of cigarette smoking i mean that is a life-changing thing but i mean other people re- report yeah. of dealing with you know traumas and all sorts of things and coming out of it like a reborn uh, a new person so yeah it's um, yeah. it's very exciting work. It's very exciting work, and I applaud you for doing it. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, in my mind, it's one so. of it's one of the um, it could be the the bridge, like the the chemical bridge between the science that we have and the spiritual experience that many people claim to, or you know, just the spiritual connection they have with the world and all that sort of stuff. I think it could be that bridge between science and religion that we might have that we might be waiting. Oh, we might have been waiting for so that we can actually begin to explain these sort of things. I mean, with the, with some objectivity rather than, you know, yeah. experiential subjective stuff. Yeah, I guess, I guess you can like, I mean, these are experiences that people have um, a lot under these drugs. I mean, it's not necessarily something that's going to happen, mm-hmm. uh, but this character seems to pop out many times in these experiences. And I think, um, sort of work that we're doing some of the stuff that we're seeing in the brain kind of like maybe kind of like related to this so an example is this idea of ego dissolution of people you know merging with this where their surroundings feeling they're one with everything um and this you know some people may label this as, as having a spiritual character others may not do we know how ego dissolution manifests in the brain well, from the psilocybin study that Robin conducted some years ago, um, and through the study in LSD that also Robin conducted some couple of years ago, uh, the results show that there's um, something about the connection on specific networks. Uh, that, that when this connection reduces, there's an enhanced, you know, the more the more these connections are reduced, the more people report uh, their their sense of ego or sense of self dissolving. Okay. Um, so it's all about it seems it's all about um, how certain circuits in the brain or certain like um, yeah connections in networks that hold the sense of self stable, mm-hmm. and when these connections get loosened this idea of a unified I, me experience mm-hmm. starts going away or changes in some sort of way. Have you, have you guys looked into the research with regards to meditation um, 
and how it affects the brain and this idea of ego death or you know the dissolution of the ego are there correlations there that you're familiar with at all um i think there are some um i think they are the surely are some i haven't looked at the meditation data specifically um but there are tons of studies mm-hmm. that have been done in the past you know just five years or something mm. um but i would definitely be you know making something up like yeah yeah no right that's now. of course because i, I have looked at that specific i appreciate know, that i appreciate that yeah. um well i think that's all on my end um okay. I, is there a anything you'd like to um, say to the people listening, any requests perhaps, or anything you'd just like to mention, um, if people want to reach out and get in touch to find out what's well, going on. Yeah, maybe, you know, so one of the projects that, uh, at the psychedelic research group that we're uh, carrying out is the psychedelic survey. So, uh, if people are going to have an experience of some kind, um, we're not endorsing any of them, but if it's going to happen, uh, we have a survey that assesses, um, you know, ask just questions about before the experience, one week after the experience, or right after the experience, one week after, and four weeks after. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very useful for us to try to understand, you know, many of the questions that we have related to the psychedelic experience that we want to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, if any of the people listening, you know, uh, of your listeners are interested in, in, in contributing to this research, well, uh, would be very, very grateful. Okay. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. Great, yeah. So, um, anyone listening, Great. if you want to, if you're looking to embark upon some psychedelic experimentation, uh, it is not condoned by, uh, the, right. But it's not condoned. <laughs> um, but yeah, check it out. And I'm pretty sure, um, do you guys have any, I, I know when I interviewed Rick Strassman, he said there's a chapter of his book uh, where he recommends, you know, how to set up for a, a nice a psychedelic experience. Um, do you have any, uh, what have you established, I guess, uh, what makes for a good set? What makes for a good setting? Um, if people do wish to go through with this uh, thing, which we do not condone. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing we're trying to understand those things as well uh, those okay. are some of the things that we're trying to quantify in the best way possible okay uh but you know generally uh what previous research shows is that you know being the most basic one is is you know being with somebody that's know what what they're doing especially mm-hmm. in the first occasions so doing it with someone who's quiet taking- safe place uh-huh. Yeah, somebody that just experienced. I mean, if somebody's embarking on a first one, uh, they usually say, like, you know, go with somebody who knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, you know, a place that is safe, that is quiet, you know, all, there, there are many things. Uh-huh. To, to and be in a good mental headspace as well. Because, see, this is where I've... um. I've been a bit confused because it's been shown that it can help with people with depression, but there's also the recommendation to do it while you're in a good headspace. And if you're depressed, chances are you're not in a good headspace. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, definitely. I mean, that's where it gets a bit complicated, Mm -hmm. you know? So even for people that are depressed in our studies, we're doing this in a very cautious way. Mm-hmm. So even if people are depressed, you need to rule out that, you know, other stuff 
like personality disorders, any sort of familiar kind of like uh, connection with schizophrenia or stuff like that, we automatically exclude people mm-hmm. like that from our studies. Yeah. Um, I would say generally self-medication is not advisable. We're trying to understand how they work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and like for, we're trying to understand how this combination between psychotherapy and drug experience uh, works better or works mm-hmm. best and in the safest way possible. Um, but, you know, at the same time, a lot of people do report getting better from yeah. them uh, in different sort of uses. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're trying to tap into, you know, what are the best ways to go about it as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, well, I'm sure I'm going to be pissed off because I feel like there's something I haven't asked. And if there's those of you listening out there who are thinking the same thing, I apologize. But um, I guess perhaps by summer next year, if um, some conclusions have been made, I'd love to check in and see what's going on. Uh, it's going to be something I'm interested yeah. in. So, um, yeah. And um, all the links that we to everything that we mentioned will be in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me, Sam. Yeah, have a chat. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I was borderline feverish at the time and was considering rescheduling, but I went ahead with it. So I hope that uh, it was up to scratch. Um, if you are finding the podcast valuable, consider supporting me on Patreon. You'll basically be buying me coffee. And I love my caffeine. Um, You can also support this podcast by sharing it with your friends or on social media or just uh, by giving it a rating on iTunes as well. It all counts. And thanks again. Uh, If you want to keep up to date with um, the goings on of the podcast, you can subscribe through the website at talkoftoday.com. I also have an Instagram page uh, at shbarton or at talkoftoday. And I am at Sam H. Barton on Twitter. So if you want to keep up to date with any of these sort of developments uh, for the podcast or just episodes or anything else that I'm working on, please check it out. Until next time. Bye.